The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in 3, 2, 1. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, zot, 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 everyday anteaters. Hello, Anteater Nation. This is the UCI Conversation Show. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. And my special guest today is a man with a very big job on campus. He is Vice Chancellor of Research, Pramod Kargonkar. Most people know that UCI is a research university, but few people outside the research area really know what that means. So I'm very grateful that Professor Kargonkar has taken the time from his busy schedule to be with us today. I thought we would get to know him first and then move into the Office of Research Arena. So welcome, Vice Chancellor Pramod Kargankar. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you, Kevin. Wonderful. Well, let's just start from the very beginning. Where did you grow up and what did you like to do when you were a kid? <laughs> Great question. I grew up in India. Uh, I was born in a, a medium-sized city in India called Indore. And actually, when I was one year old, my parents were both school teachers. So they uh, were relocated to a much smaller village called Kannod. So from age one to 10, I was in this re- literally a small village. And there was, you know, uh, no running water, no electricity. Uh, so that's how I grew up. I, I think, I, you know, like any other kid that age, I enjoyed uh, playing with friends and hanging out. Yeah, very, very good. Now, India, you know, most of us listening, we're not from India. Are you in like central India or northern, southern? Whereabouts are you? Yeah. So, th- so the place that places that we are talking about, Indore and Kandod, are in west central India. Okay. So about yeah. 400 miles west north of Mumbai, which many people might know. Right, right. Which is on the, the west coast of west India. West coast of India. Kind yeah. of central India. Okay, very good. So you're in a in a village up until 10 years old where no running water? And no electricity. And no electricity. Wow. Wow. But that's like normal. That's right. That's normal, right? For, yeah, for I you. mean, it, uh, in the city, there was electricity. But in the village, there was none. And yeah. I think it was a time when electrification in India was really accelerating. So I mm. think over the next many years, electricity came to the places uh, that mm. we are talking about. 
Yeah. Uh, and likewise for running water. I mean, it took some time, but it, but you know, uh, we got there. Yeah. And then you moved it when you were 10, did you move back to, so move back to indoor, which oh, is okay. my birthplace. And I did my middle school and high school there. So yeah. from grade six to 11, I was in, uh, in my birthplace indoor. No. Okay. And, and that's a somewhat, that's a city, right? Oh yeah. It's a medium sized city. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. the largest city in the state, uh, mm. uh, state of Madhya Pradesh. Okay. Yeah. So that's a, you know, it's a big trading, uh, city. Uh, it's the bread. I mean, one of the major bread baskets of India, a lot of really great agriculture happens mm. in that region, cotton, uh, and, and so by now a lot of industry has moved there. Gotcha. Gotcha. So did you always know that you would go to college? Yeah, I think so. I mean, my parents, like I said, were school teachers. It's very interesting. Mm -hmm. Both my parents actually reached master's degrees, but they didn't go to college. They did it by self-study and Mm -hmm. by doing exams (laughs) at that time, by doing exams remotely. So, you know, they they would get these exam papers in the mail and they would write out the answers and, and submit them and they both actually achieved quite well uh, in terms of education, but not in the traditional way that, you know, you, one would go to college. So because they were school teachers and there was tremendous emphasis on education, yeah, I think I, we always knew that we had to go to college. Right. Now, it's interesting, you know, that my sense, you know, just having been raised in the United States, that India really has made unbelievable progress in the last 30 or 40 years, right? You went from villages with no running water and so forth. And that education was highly valued, you know, and your parents were school teachers, but um, was the basic infrastructure there for India to recognize that education was very important? Do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I know. I know, Kevin, what you're trying to get at. What I will say is that in India, learning and, uh, and learned people have been always held in the highest mm-hmm. esteem. Mm-hmm. Uh, they weren't always rich, but they were always regarded very highly. So learning and associated wisdom that comes with it has always been uh, mm-hmm. very important to people in India. And that goes back, you know, three, four, five thousand years. So this is ancient yeah. ancient culture mm. um, and you know prior to independence from the british colonial rule people were getting educated uh, mm. and as india achieved independence mm-hmm. uh, the leadership of india recognized that building up educational institutions was very very important for the future of the country yeah and so they've set about the task of uh, you know abject poverty under the colonial rule to building up a modern society. Uh, And so, yeah, I think India has always had that tradition and I think it's going to continue. Yeah. Yeah. Well, excellent. So you go to the Indian Institute of Technology in, is it Bombay or Mumbai? Well, it was Bombay then it's called Mumbai now. Gotcha. Gotcha. How did you decide? Was it was that for sure the place you would go or did you have other places that you thought about? That's a great question, Kevin. It brings back memories from the 
uh, late 60s and early 70s, because that was the time I was in high school from 69 to 72. And, you know, I was very good at math. I was very good at physics. And I loved both subjects. And part of me wanted to be a physicist, uh, but I also knew that I was good at math. And one thing that, you know, was important for us was uh, make, you know, uh, getting a job uh, and, and being in a profession where one could earn a living. Uh, and that's sort of what drove me towards engineering as a, as a compromise, if you will, between doing pure science, for which job prospects in India weren't very good. I mean, if you did pure science, I mean, you could become uh, perhaps a, a school teacher or something like that. Uh, but with engineering, I mean, uh, with the technological growth and industrialization of India, the job prospects would be much, much better. Mm-hmm. Now, choice of IIT Bombay, that was quite a bit of uh, happenstance, as you know, happens in, in uh, all of our lives. Mm. So there were these five IITs, and they really were unknown in the, in the interior of India. So like, you know, where I was, these were not well-known institutions. There was a local engineering college, and that would be sort of the go-to place for most kids growing up there uh, who wanted to do engineering. There was this local college that you would go to. But in my high school, there was a flyer talking about this uh, uh, Indian Institute of Technology and that there would be an entrance exam. So these institutions were special because they admitted students based on the results from an entrance exam, Mm -hmm. uh, not just from the high school uh, record. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I decided to just, you know, sit in for the exam. I mean, I found out that there is this exam and I prepared for it without really thinking too much about what the outcome would be. Well, Mm -hmm. as it turned out, I got, uh, you know, I got uh, secured admission. And then it was a difficult decision because leaving hometown to go elsewhere to study was very uncommon mm. uh, for a number of reasons. But I think economic reason would be the most important that it, it would cost a lot more money to go to another city and live uh, in a dormitory right. and pay living costs and food costs. Whereas if you stayed home, you could go to college, come back home in the evening, which is what most kids did. Mm-hmm. Well, my, my my parents were very supportive. They recognized that uh, having secured admission to IIT Bombay would open up doors to me that wouldn't be had I stayed uh, back home. So a number of coincidences led me to uh, IIT Bombay. Is that is that one of the top, top schools of India? Yeah, it is yeah. arguably the best engineering school in India. Yeah. Uh, certainly one of the very best. Yeah, you know, yeah. There are... There are um, now, there are a number of IITs, but the original five are still considered to be the top five, and IIT Bombay is, I'm an alum, so I would say it's the best of the, <laughs> best of the top five, but certainly they are in the top five. Yeah, yeah, that, that's very good. It's sort of like, you know, there was, an art, there was a story in um, 60 Minutes or one of the national um, um, magazines. Yeah. And this was in the 90s, I think. Uh, they talked about how it was so much harder to get into IIT than to get into MIT. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So, the, so the odds of getting into IITs are so much smaller than getting into the elite institutions yeah. in the U.S. Just because the denominator is so much bigger, right? You've mm-hmm. got a country of 
1.3 billion people so uh, yeah yeah so yeah these yeah. are these are really top institutions did you have any science heroes growing up or you know oh, when you yeah. got, great. Can, you, can you name a couple yeah great great question you know when i was growing up in my hometown and going to high school uh, there was a local library that i would go to uh, practically every evening and just read what was there and i still remember there were books on einstein there was a book by george gamma who is a very famous physicist uh, i forget uh, i think it's called 1 2 3 infinity if my memory serves right uh, i remember reading that book and getting all excited about the world of science it, it talked about the famous uh, experiment in south america on relativity and i was just mesmerized by what i was reading and i i hardly understood a thing okay i, I should tell you <laughs> i didn't understand anything i didn't understand anything but i knew this was high science yeah. the other memory i have which is very very distinct is the moon landing now we didn't yeah. have television okay we didn't have television but we had broadcast from uh, radio i imagine it must be voice of america that was broadcasting you know all over the world and i i suspect it's either voice of america or bbc that i listened to but we knew there was going to be moon uh, uh, moon landing so you know i i still recall listening to it on a transistor radio uh, as uh, as neil armstrong uh, you know uh, said the famous words and yes. the excitement the excitement of uh, that space travel and moon landing is uh, is a very vivid memory from that time so you know heroes like einstein and uh, and moon landing these were formative uh, years of my life yes oh, very very good excuse me just for a moment professor while i update our audience Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to the UCI Conversation Show. I'm your host Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is Vice Chancellor of Research Pramod Kargonkar. We're just getting to know him before we dive into what the Office of Research is all about at UCI. And Professor, we're we're to the point where you've gone through your undergrad work. Did you know that you would go for grad work right away or how was that process? Yes, another of those uh... serendipitous events that happen in one's life i did not want to leave india i wanted to stay in india and uh, get a job actually i had applied for getting an mba at one of the iims indian institute of management there were three of them again like iits these iims were the best business schools in the country mm-hmm. uh, i had applied to two of them and i had got an admission to both of them but at the same time i had a very close friend uh, who is now a professor at at berkeley uh, mm-hmm. his father uh, was a very famous physicist at the tata institute for fundamental research in bombay tifr it's a, a world class uh, science research institution and uh, so he, his father was a very famous physicist who had traveled all over the world and my friend suggested that i should talk to his father before making up my mind as to what to do with my life mm-hmm. and i said you know why not i mean uh, how can i lose by not mm-hmm. listening to this uh, you know very uh, well known yeah. scientist so i went to him talked to him about uh, different options that i had in front of me including doing a phd at iit bombay 
and without missing a beat okay hmm. he said you got it all wrong you must go to the united states he said if you really want to develop your capabilities and learn what it is to do research so forth you need to go to where it really happens and that's in the us so you <laughs> should apply you should get your phd there and then if you want to come back come back if you want to stay there stay there mm-hmm. beyond that he didn't have any advice to give me because mm-hmm. he himself had developed all his career in india so he wasn't about, he wasn't telling me to go to us and stay there he was just saying go to the place where you will really really learn what what it is to do research uh, and so that advice really changed my life mm-hmm. and that was the step one on a path to coming to the us mm-hmm. would you still give that advice today or has it changed uh i think a lot has changed from yeah. the, so so we're talking about 77 okay right long right. time ago long time right. ago right uh, 2022 is a different world india right. has a number of really top flight institutions now uh opportunities in india are are so much better than they mm. used to be when i was there so right. i think I, my advice would be different today than it was yeah. than what i got at that time yeah yeah understandable I would still say you know going to the US to to do research is uh a great option but mm. there are other options now in India that yeah. weren't present when I was there. Gotcha. How do you decide on the University of Florida at Gainesville? Oh, uh, another of those great coincidences. <laughs> okay. You're you're asking me really wonderful questions here. Uh-huh. So, uh I was uh, in my final year and taking some advanced graduate courses uh and i had special i mean i was sort of not quite specializing because this is undergraduate right so you don't really specialize as an undergraduate but i was taking some advanced courses in in the field of controls uh, which is part of electrical engineering and i began to read some papers uh, as part of this advanced graduate course and it became apparent to me that the founding father of the field was uh, a person named by professor rudolf kalman so he was widely acknowledged as uh, having really laid the the founding stones for my field so i read his papers and i was just, just totally blown away by his uh, thinking by his writing by his visions uh, and by by sort of the clarity uh, of how he was seeing uh, the research scene so you know i said well you know if i'm trying to go to, to the us why don't i try and study under the best person in the field wow so you know at that time you know we didn't make phone calls and things like that so right. i uh, i i wrote a letter uh, handwritten okay yeah. kevin yeah. handwritten letter to professor kalman i found his address through one of the articles uh, yeah. there was no internet at that time okay right. so right. i find i find his address in uh, in one of the papers he had written and then i write to him saying that i've been reading your papers and i want to do a phd in in uh, in controls and uh, it would be really uh, tremendous if he would take me as his phd student and then i had no money so uh, yeah, the only way this is going to be possible is that if, <laughs> if, if he was going to be able to uh, arrange for some sort of financial support so that uh, so that it would be uh, practical for me yeah. to come yeah. and you know i don't think i 
really expected an answer. I mean, I, I figured, you know, lots of people would write to a person like him and, uh, you know, is he even going to read a handwritten letter from, from a kid in India? Well, lo and behold, uh, within about uh, three or four weeks, it took, you know, by the, at that time, Kevin, it would take a couple of weeks for a letter to go from right. India to the U.S. Uh, and so in like about four to five weeks, I got a really nice letter from him saying uh, he was very happy to admit me as his student and he was making arrangements with the university to offer me a research assistantship. Wow. And that was, that wow. was the biggest turning point in my life. And, and it just this complete uh, serendipitous thing that I'm reading his papers, writing him a letter. I mean, like, right. can you imagine the improbable set of events that uh, that would mark right. that turning point. Right. When you opened that letter and read what it said, I mean, you must have been jumping up and down. Oh, I, I knew I knew what it meant. Yeah. I knew what it meant. And no, of course, I didn't know what would happen to me, okay, to be honest, Kevin. I mean, I knew that I had the chance to learn from the best. And that was basically the sort of the main thing that stood in front of me and that the choice had now become obvious of what to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I had these competing options, right? And, and actually, you know, my father, uh, may he rest in peace, uh, wasn't too thrilled about the idea that I would leave uh, uh. home and go, you know, seven, 8,000 miles away. Uh, but they, they supported me in that decision. Yeah. Oh, very good. And you end up, um, you got your master's degree in mathematics and your PhD in electrical engineering. Is that common or the, yeah, is it common? No, it's, it's not, not very common. Yeah. And I can tell you how that happened. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, the field I study is very, very mathematical. So, yeah. so as soon as I get to the University of Florida, the first thing I realized I know very little mathematics. I mean, I learned some math in engineering as, a, as an undergrad. Right. But that really isn't what it takes to do research in my field. So, uh. and at the time, University of Florida was on the quarter system. So from quarter one, I'm taking advanced math course, math classes, because I know that's what it's going to take for me to be able to do research. So I, I you know, I'm hanging out half the time in the math department, take, learning all sorts of math. And I didn't really want to take a master's degree because I wanted to go right to the PhD. And that's what my admission was for. My admission in electrical engineering was for the PhD. So I didn't want to take a, a master's degree. So here I'm cruising along, you know, this is sort of fall of 80. And my math professors tell me, look, you've done so much math that if you take these three exams, you'll get a master's degree. Huh? I said, okay, you know, I was going to get a master's degree anyway, but if yeah. you're going to give me a master's degree for what I've already done, right. all I need to do is to take three exams. Right. I said, okay, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll take these three exams and I think in algebra, analysis, and, and uh, topology, okay? Mm -hmm. So, you know, these exams were held on weekends. Uh, so I, I go a couple of weekends and uh, do those exams and, you know, I, I passed all of them and they said, oh, you know, you, you qualify for a master's in math. I said, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> very good. And so if you look at you know you look at the dates it looks very odd right so i get my master's in december of 80 and i get my phd in august of 81 and people say hey you did your phd in eight months no no that's not the way it, that's not the way it worked all right gotcha gotcha so you graduate with your phd in, in 81 and then um, you start at the university of minnesota as an electrical engineering professor and 
How did you go to you know Minnesota? Oh, that's a great question again, Kevin. So you know, uh, I was looking to leave University of Florida uh, to build my own uh, independent career, and I looked at many universities and applied to several. But what was special about Minnesota uh, was that Minneapolis was home to Honeywell Corporation. And Honeywell had a research center that called Systems Research Center, Honeywell SRC, and it was the best research center from industry in my field. And there weren't very many like Honeywell SRC. In fact, arguably, there was nothing like Honeywell SRC. That was a place where there were people from industry and people from academia working together at, on the most advanced problems in control. And so, when I had the offer from University of Minnesota. I also knew about this group at Honeywell, and I think it was this combination of a chance to be very close to this Honeywell SRC and being at the same time at a top uh, research university in the Big Ten, uh, and that's what took me to Minnesota. Now, uh, at a personal level, you know, we had a one-year, uh, no, <laughs> uh, five weeks old son, uh, and we had always lived. In India and Florida till that time, so I, had no, I, had, I had no idea what I was getting myself and my wife and my son into, uh, going from the sunny Florida to this uh, you know, Arct- Arctic Minnesota. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> uh, but I was young. We were young. Uh, right. And we, we loved our time in the Minnesota. I mean, people certainly must have said, "Hey, are you sure it's going to be cold up there?" But are you are you basically saying, "Yeah, I didn't know what cold was." I had no, no idea what yeah. cold was, yeah. Kevin. Yeah. You know, I I can tell you one anecdote. Sure. So so you know, Minneapolis is a city of lakes. Okay. Right. So Minnesota is called state of ten thousand lakes. So right. You, everywhere you go, you got these beautiful bodies of water. Right. And we moved there in August, and so you know, summers are very beautiful. Sunny, yeah. Warm, very yeah. nice. So we right. would take our, you know, oh, this is, mo- this is great. Old, yeah, a couple of month old son, you know, in in the stroller <laughs> and go around, you know, <laughs> Minneapolis and and see all these different lakes, and people would, you know, they were very friendly people. Uh, Minnesotans are very friendly people, so they would, you know, greet us and they'd say. Oh, you just moved. So where did you move from? And we would say, "Well, we moved from Florida," yeah. and their jaw would drop, like they couldn't believe themselves. <laughs> uh, like you know, do you know what you've done? <laughs> Very good. So, you know, pushing forward, then you go to Michigan and yeah. you you become a chair of a, a department for, and you're there for twelve years. So, you know, you're progressing administratively and in your specialty, and then you return to the University of Florida for a 15-year for stint there. And, you know, is everything, you know, any, did anything major happen in these days except, you know, you were developing? Yeah, I would say, you know, I, I, I think of myself as having grown up professionally at Michigan. No, I, I spent 12 years uh, at Michigan. Uh-huh. I was full professor, uh-huh. uh, then became department chair of EECS, which is one of the largest departments of its kind, at least uh-huh. was at the time. And that's uh, engineering and computer science, science. right? Ele- electrical uh-huh. engineering and computer science. So gotcha. we had almost 90 faculty, $35 million in research at that time, which was a lot of money. Uh, this uh-huh. is, we are talking about 90s. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, I grew up uh, professionally at Michigan. Michigan is one of the very best public research universities in the country, if not the mm-hmm. world. And so uh, what it means to be at a top research university and to be a leader, a lot of that, those skills I learned at Michigan. Gotcha. So yeah. why do you leave? Because you, you go yeah, back. Why, yeah, I thought that's where you were going to go with that. So. <laughs> We, I, we were perfectly happy in Ann Arbor. Ann Arbor is a great place to live. I was doing very well professionally. But then I got a, you know, uh, got a contact from uh, my alma mater mm. saying they were looking for a dean mm. and if I would be interested. And initially I didn't, uh, didn't take it seriously, but they kept, kept coming. Uh-huh. And, uh, I think the draw of leading my own Alma mater was uh, the reason that took me back to Florida. Mm-hmm. Okay. In 2013 to 2016, simultaneously, you're at the National Science Foundation as an assistant director of Directorate of Engineering. Can you tell us what that is? Sure. So I had stepped down from being dean and mm-hmm. got recruited uh, to the National Science Foundation. So the National Science Foundation is the federal research agency that supports research in all fields of science and engineering and education across the country. It supports basic research. The foundation is organized in seven directorates. So there are various directorates for various fields. So there is, for example, directorate of math and physical sciences, a directorate for computer science and engineering, computer information science and engineering, there is a directorate of engineering and geological sciences and biological sciences and so forth. So there are these seven directorates and each directorate is headed by an assistant director. So NSF has a director and seven assistant directors. Mm. And I was one of the seven assistant directors uh, from 2013 to 2016, uh, leading the engineering directorate that covers all fields of engineering, except computer science. Computer science is a separate directorate all by itself. Uh, and uh, by the time I was leaving, uh, the budget of my directorate was about a billion dollars. Mm, wow. Okay. And then are you now, so are you at the University of Florida and at the uh, National Science Foundation? Are you there at the same time? For- yeah. So the way NSF does this is through what is called an IPA program. So IPA, IPA program is actually part of the federal government legislation. It's called Intergovernment Personnel Act. And what it does, it allows between federal agencies and non-federal entities like universities for people to go for short to medium term assignments without losing their position at the home institution. So the way it works for NSF is they hired me as assistant director of NSF while leaving my position at University of Florida intact and that I could return to it at the end of my time because these positions at NSF are time limited. So Mm. you cannot do more than four years. And to make it attractive to both sides, universities love it because their people get experience in the federal government and government gets access to this talent pool at nation's universities to work in the federal government. So that's the program under which this was done. Gotcha. Are you in Washington, D.C. at that time? Yeah. 
So mm. from 2013 to 2016, we were in Washington, D.C. Gotcha. Just excuse me one more time, Professor. Ladies and gentlemen, if you joined us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations right here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. And my guest is Vice Chancellor of the Office of Research, Pramod Kargonkar. And we've been learning all about his career and we're about to venture into what the Office of Research is all about because in June of 2016, you leave the National Science Foundation. You know, how does that all happen? You're, the, you're at the National Science Foundation, and then instead of going back to Florida, you come to UCI. Yeah, so, you know, like I told you, these jobs have term limits. So mm-hmm. I was reaching the end of my term, yes. and it's common for people in that role in their fourth year to see what they can do with their life and career. Mm-hmm. So one option was clearly to return to University of Florida. So that was always there in mm-hmm. hand. But I said, well, you know, it's, you know it, it won't do any harm to see what else is possible. Mm-hmm. And this opening at UC Irvine came up for vice chance for research. You know, one thing led to another. I knew several people at UCI. I had actually come, I had been invited to come to Irvine to give a talk in the School of Engineering. Greg Washington was the dean then, and Fariyar Jabari, who is still here, was associate dean. And there is a big uh, energy research center at UC Irvine. So in that sort of setting, they said, you know, why don't you come and give a talk uh, just about NSF, what's happening, uh, what are we funding? And then also I do, I was working on uh, electric grid, smart grid type of research. So give a talk in uh, the Advanced Power and Energy Center. So I, I had come to Arwine. So I kind of knew many of the players. Uh, and then this opening came up and uh, I interviewed and got the offer and accepted it. Gotcha. What attracted you to the job in particular? I think two things. Uh, one is the people. Uh, I really, really liked the people that I interviewed with, the chancellor, the provost, uh, the deans. Uh, and then second was the ambition, that UCI was a very ambitious university that wanted to rise up in the ranks of uh, leading research, public research universities in the world. And I think it's what that combination of liking the people and uh, liking the ambition and the goals that the university wanted to achieve. Gotcha. And I understand from talking to people and also just from observing that our research budget has just gone, well, exploded. I mean, from when, when you were, when you started, what was the research budget and where are we now? So we, we were, you know, 350 to 400 range. If you go back, say, you average, say, years 2013 to 2016, you will get 340 as your average, maybe. I'm, I'm speaking out of uh, my, my mind. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like, yeah, just, yeah, just, yeah. Rough, just rough numbers. And last year we crossed, uh, we, we came almost close to 530. So almost, you know, close to $200 million increase. We crossed our goal of 500 million. Right. Uh, and this year we are again on track. Uh, we have already crossed 370 and we are in February. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We are at 370 uh, and we've got you know, typically, you know, the last 
six months of the year, which for us is the fiscal year. So January to June tend to be very strong. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm, you know, you, you never want to say for sure, but uh, we should hit a good number this year as well. So what is involved? Is mm-hmm. this, are, are you helping faculty to, apply for you know grants and research funding or, or you know or is it your office that's doing all this how does this work yeah it's a great question <laughs> and uh, i can go on about how this works but let me come back to yeah. the the question which is sort of implicit in what you asked me yeah uh, this explosive growth and research like yeah how did it happen right yeah 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 <laughs> like you know so so what's thing I will say is that there is no single silver bullet. It isn't like you do this one thing and this is going to happen. Mm. And that's not how it has happened. There are a number of things that have been done, which taken together, I think have led to this increase. So I want to just kind of go over what what those things are. Please. So number one thing I will say is faculty recruiting. So Mm -hmm. we have, you know, excellent existing faculty. uh, And then over the last few years, we've been adding new faculty. Uh, in, in all parts of the university. And that has been a significant part of this growth is adding, adding these, uh, these faculty. And we have done some special programs which are focused on research. So one of the recruiting programs for new faculty was, uh, it, it's a long name, FHLRE, Faculty Hiring for Leveraged Research Excellence. So this program was created in collaboration with the provost's office Uh, pretty soon after I came here. And the idea was to go and recruit faculty that can really help us grow research. Hmm. And so that, so I would say faculty hiring and these special programs for faculty hiring have been a a significant part. And have you been involved with that? Yeah, yeah. So that Hmm. was a program we created and I was involved in selection of those uh, proposals. Hmm. Again, you know, this happens across the universities. So once we approve these hiring then the deans and the department chairs and the faculty go and find the best people in those fields and recruit them. So, so it, it, you know, all hands on deck kind of a thing. So, so recruiting new faculty. Second thing we have done quite a bit of is investing in research infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you can, in order to compete nationally and globally in research, particularly in sort of experimental fields in science, engineering, medicine, requires state-of-the-art research infrastructure. You need to have access to instruments, facilities, labs. And we have done a lot uh, of that over the last few years to invest in these research infra- physical research infrastructure uh, to enable our faculty to write competitive proposals and get data that goes into their proposals. So investment in research infrastructure, spaces, labs, buildings, et cetera, has been a, a significant part of what we have done. A third piece of this puzzle is real support for multidisciplinary team collaborative research. So, you know, today's research differs markedly from what was true, say, 50, 60 years ago, where a single PI, a single professor, working with his team of students, you know, could pretty much have a full career in that mode. Well, if you look at today's research environment, many, if not most of our problems 
require collaboration among different fields for real advancement. And so we have recognized that we call it convergence research, and we have supported our faculty in collaboration, uh, applying for large grant proposals as teams. Uh, we have a whole team of experts. Actually, UCI is very special that we have four world-class experts in team science, team research, team collaboration. So we have created team science or team scholarship accelerator lab. So this is a group of experts that help colleagues who want to do collaborative work on how to do it well, how to do it successfully. And so we have a lot of resources. So if you go to teamscholarship.uci.edu, you will find a wealth of resources to help faculty do this collaborative research. So we have invested a lot in that. A fourth thing that we have done is seed funding. So we have provided internal seed funds to groups of people that want to come together and go after major research targets that allows them to get some initial uh, results, data that can go into grant applications. So I would say these are the key elements that have come together uh, in a perfect storm to increase our research. Mm. That fourth one, did you call it seal funding? Seed funding, seed. Uh, like, how do you spell that? S-E-E-D. Oh, seed funding. Okay, gotcha. Seed funding. Gotcha. So, you know, basically you're planting seeds. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Hope that a big plant or a tree is going to grow. And that's what we have seen happen. Right. Boy, how, you know, when, and, and you know, you've been talking about us doing this very effectively and, you know, when we when you compare us to other major universities, are we shoulders to shoulder or, you know, do you do you care or, you know, um, wh- that's a where great is- question, Kevin, is, you know, on the one hand, universities are very competitive entities, right? We, we want to be number one. We want to be right, right, right. So, <laughs> we want to be better than all our sister institutions. I think what I will say is this. We certainly want to be in the league of the best research universities. Yeah. So in that sense, we are competitive and we should be competitive because we, we do want to be uh, among the best. And in that regard, I think our growth and rise uh, is very heartwarming. I think we our stature continues to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, our reputation continues to grow. But we also live in an extremely competitive world. Okay, so every other university worthy of its name, is trying to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Now, where I think I want to take our conversation mm-hmm. is to say that it's going to take all of us to really address the problems that our world faces. Okay, mm-hmm. So think about the problems that our world faces. You can think of health and well-being. right? Mm-hmm. You can think about cancer. You can think about Alzheimer's. You can think about <laughs> SARS-CoV-2. You can... You know, so, yeah. so there's a whole host of challenges. Climate change. Yeah. Yeah. And the second, yeah, I was going to go to climate change is another area. Now, is, a, is any single university going to solve all these problems? I don't think so. It's going to take all of us together mm. to produce the innovations, produce the new knowledge, and put it to practice to benefit the people. So, yeah, it is a competitive world. We would, I want UCI to be as good as any other institution. But at the same time, I feel that it's the entire ecosystem of research universities, 
of uh, the talent that we all produce that goes out in the real world, either in the academic world or in the industrial world or the business world. And together, can we move our society forward and address these big problems uh, that we are facing? Yes, yes, wow. I left you speechless. <laughs> <laughs> There's like, you know, we're starting to have limited time and I'm yeah. trying to. Uh, so we've been talking a lot about technical fields. Yeah. Where do the, I don't know if the word soft or, or you know, more yeah, humanity, yeah. the humanities, where does That's a that great question? I'm, Kevin, I'm glad you asked me that question because <sighs> one of the drawbacks of just looking at dollars is that really devalues uh, humanities, art, social sciences, right? And that's really unfair and wrong, completely wrong, in my opinion. So I do want to emphasize that we cannot measure research just by dollars. Knowledge creation and creative activity comes in a variety of forms. And the role for arts, humanities, social sciences is absolutely critical. Let's just talk about two things. Okay, so think about health and well-being and quality of life. Uh, so we have a medical humanities program at UCI, which marries together humanities with uh, medicine and healthcare. And I think all of us as individuals, as family members, we can connect to the fact that being healthy and having a, a, a good life is more than taking pills, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and especially if you look at the societal level, uh, it, it has to involve fields from social sciences, from humanities, from arts to make a full picture uh, of a healthy life. And let's look at climate change, right? So I have absolutely come to the conclusion that whereas science and technology will make great contributions to addressing climate change, uh, both adaptation and miti uh, mitigation and ad adaptation, it's also going to require new narratives about how we live and how we live with each other, how we live with Mother Earth, how we live sustainably. And that's not all going to come from science and engineering. It's going to mm -hmm. come from different ways of thinking about ourselves, our society, our relationship to the planet and other species. Uh, I mean, think about the issue of biodiversity. Uh, and so I think role again for humanities, social sciences, arts is paramount in order for us to transition from where we are to a future for our children and grandchildren uh, so that we can live uh, in balance uh, with nature. Mm, wow. You know, w well said, particularly coming from a scientist, you know, from to acknowledge that that important part. I think history teaches us this, Kevin. You look at almost every technological revolution. It has come with good and it has come with bad. Mm -hmm. And the, you look at the latest one, right, that we have been through and we're still going through, which is the IT revolution, you know, mm -hmm. the Internet, the web. By 2022, it's absolutely clear that whereas there have been some tremendous things that have come out of it, like, you know, uh, I don't need to take maps with me anymore. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's a great positive. But yeah. we practically have put our democracy at risk. Uh -huh. uh, right. Yeah. And yeah. so 
I'm cautioned. I'm cautioned that if you, we can't leave technology to drive our future. We have mm. got to bring social science, humanities, arts perspectives so that we can shape the co-evolution of society and technology. Wow, wow. The School of Humanities has over a dozen centers, Center for Jewish Studies, New Swan Shakespeare Center, Critical Korean Studies, to name a few. Are you involved with those, the, the, the funding for those centers? or? Yeah, so what we do is uh, a few things. We give a block grant to the School of Humanities for supporting research in humanities because humanities doesn't have access to federal funding sources like, say, engineering or uh, physics or uh, medicine does. So mm -hmm. we do some internal support. We support some centers. In fact, we just are starting a new center in humanities. Uh, it's called C-Lab. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to the UCI Conversation Show with my guest, Vice Chancellor of Research, Pramod Kargonkar. The C-Lab he just referred to stands for the Center for Liberation, Anti-Racism, and Belonging an ambitious initiative out of the School of Humanities. Now back to the interview. We just funded C-Lab out of my office. And two other things. Humanities Research Institute is part of Office of Research, as is the New Swan Theater. So this happened just in the last two years that the New Swan Theater was uh, moved to be administered out of Office of Research. Uh, to round out our portfolio, uh, I mean, in part because we are very proud of about uh, the, the tremendous creative work that happens there. Uh, yes. But it, it also, I think, signals to the university community that Office of Research includes creative activity. Gotcha. Is there anything in terms of your Office of Research that we haven't touched on there or that you could you know, shed a little bit more light on? Uh, I think the one thing that probably we should mention. Yeah. And I think I want to mention it in the context of infrastructure. So I talked about the lab infrastructure, right? I talked about the research instruments and things of that nature. There is also the human infrastructure without which none of this research will be possible. And Office of Research is home to much of that human infrastructure. These are the people who process proposals, submit them to agencies, if we are lucky enough to get them, they do all the contracting and bring the money home, <laughs> create yeah. an account where faculty can start spending that money. So all of that activity is done by people in Office of Research. And we want to be sure that we recognize the role of that human infrastructure that is very, very important to achieving these goals. And the other piece is information infrastructure. I mean, in today's world, to look at $600 million, we need state-of-the-art information systems in all aspects of research. And so we are home to a lot of that. And the other piece of this puzzle is that it's very distributed. So there is a central group that reports directly to me that includes human subjects research and animal research and uh, all those things. And there are people who do research management in all the schools and research centers. And they are all part of this community uh, of human infrastructure that uh, enables research at UCI. So I just want to make sure that we acknowledge the tremendous role they play. They are kind of the unsung heroes of the research enterprise. They are behind the scenes. You don't see their names in papers. You don't see 
uh, you know, they are not authors yeah. on papers, but without them, we couldn't do any of the things that we are doing. Yeah, yeah, very, very good. It seems to me that diversity, equity, inclusion are important, not only for a healthy society, but also to stay competitive. Do you have any thoughts about this? Absolutely, absolutely. And I see this everywhere. I look at UCI research. I, you know, I meet with various research centers regularly. And one thing that sort of stands out is in so many of them, they are interested in addressing issues of social justice, of inclusion, of ensuring that the benefits of research that they are doing accrue to broad sections of society and not to a select few. So this is everywhere. This is already an imperative from sponsors and, and agencies. It's also a moral imperative of our time. And so you're 100% correct that diversity, inclusion, equity, or, uh, equity are very, very important. Mm-hmm. You know, we need diverse teams to produce research that is going to be beneficial to society at large. It cannot be homogenous teams. Different ways of thinking, different life experiences need to be brought to table. Gotcha. Is your office primarily involved with faculty research? Like, does it go through faculty to students? So are you mostly dealing with faculty? Is, is, yeah. Can you say I that? Think I would say that. I would say yeah. that mostly we deal with faculty. They get the grants and then that grant supports the graduate students and the postdocs. Gotcha. Gotcha. Just a couple of closing questions. Adversity. A lot of times students will look at successful people who have risen, you know, in their careers as, oh, well, they were just naturals. It was easy. Do you have any example of, or a time when you can remember, you know, having adversity that was a a struggle for you and, and what did you do to overcome it? Does anything come to mind? I mean, I would say I've gone through many phases in life where I was down or things weren't looking good, you know, grants rejected, papers rejected. I've been through the whole cycle. Uh, basically you have to come back to who you are and what your purpose is, what motivates you and recognize that it's a long, it's a long haul and you stay focused, you stay true to your vision and your own, uh, value system. Why are you doing what you're doing and, and be adaptive and flexible. Uh, I think that was the one absolute key to dealing with adversity is not to be rigid, is to adapt and flex and pivot uh, as circumstances and environment changes while staying true to your fundamental core values. Gotcha. And lastly, Vice Chancellor, the big question is, do you wordle? I don't. Have you, um, has anybody shown you it yet? <laughs> I've seen it, on, uh, I've seen it, but I haven't bothered to. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's a, that's I know okay. it could be a time sink. If I get into it, it will, it will be a time sink. <laughs> well, that's the beauty of it. It only takes like five or minutes. Because I was the same way. I was really like hesitant. No, I don't need another thing. But of course, when you first started, it's like, oh, this is only five minutes. It's great. But then. Then you start to get more competitive and then now I'm writing on paper where the, you know, the, the, the letters and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, Vice Chancellor, thank you so much. It's, it's gone super fast and you really have enlightened and uh, it was wonderful to hear your personal story and then also about the Office of Research. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. It was wonderful talking to you.
Thank you again to Vice Chancellor of Research Pramod Kargonkar. What an amazing journey. From a small village with no running water or electricity, to listening to man's first moon landing on a transistor radio, to become a leader within the National Science Foundation and now UCI. Vice Chancellor Kargonkar spoke with great eloquence about how science research must also include the humanities. His quote of, We cannot leave technology to drive our future. We must also bring social science, humanities, and arts perspective so we can shape the co-evolution of society and technology. Thank you, thank you, thank you to Vice Chancellor of Research Pramod Kargonkar for his wise words. And now coming up next at the top of the hour is public affairs host Oswaldo Diaz talking in Espanol all about health and well-being. Stay tuned. You've been listening to the UCI Conversation Show, where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anteaters. For an encore presentation of this show or any of my past shows, simply go to my podcast website at www.bossenmeyer.com. And comments and suggestions are always welcome at kboss at kuci.org. I'm your host, Kevin Bostenmeyer, wishing you a pleasant good evening and encouraging you to keep working hard and enjoying the process. So long, everybody. Happy trails. You are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Take it away, piano med Fred Kaplan with Signifying from the CD of the same name, Signifying. (laughs) 